Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 97 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday morning, October 26th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Weren't we just here? We are deep diving again, back to back. Deep, uh, uh, part two, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. I prefer uh, part D. Part D. Hot shots. Hot shots. Part I still think the greatest uh, uh, sequel title ever in history that was unfortunately not used was Spaceballs 3, The Search for Spaceballs 2. <laughs> that, that, that's probably right. I can't come up with anything better than that. But so you, you've given me an idea for Frivaldi, by the way. Best Charlie Sheen movies. Or worst, as the case may be. It's a fine line. Yeah, that, that'll be for another occasion. I suspect so you see my love. There's a fine line between love and nausea. <laughs> Coming to America. All right. Um, we uh, so we started this whole deep dive thing yesterday, yes. right? Pfizer um, focused, indeed. Before we get to, we have some announcements coming before we get back into it. But one of the things that's weird about today's episode is, as we start recording this, we're not sure if this is part two of two or part two of three. Oh, the possible hidden track at the end. Now, now mind you, <laughs> I mean, I think our listeners will know because it'll probably be clear from the title and or the show notes. But but we are we are we are starting with a little bit of uncertainty about whether we can squeeze everything from September 11th to the present for FISA into a a, a reasonable length episode. Right. So we decided we don't we're not going to worry about. It. We're not going to artificially force right. ourselves. It's like to a Twitter thread, this. one of X. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. If we need an additional, if we need to follow the deep dive, not only with the deeper dive, but with a still deepest, deeper dive, the deepest, deepest dive, the deepest dive, then so be it. But if we can get it done in an hour or so, um, <laughs> ish, ish. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of extending the length of this episode, let me pause to share a few uh, notes about two things we've been mentioning. One is. The hundredth episode, Da-da-da-da. Steve. We've got it. We've got a centennial coming up, and, and we have details. We do. All right, folks. We will be live in Washington D.C. for the recording of our hundredth episode on Wednesday, November fourteenth, during lunchtime from 12, 12.15 to about one forty-five. Of course, you guys know how that goes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think. I think we both have places we actually have to be, so we're going to try to stick to that. And it's D.C., not Austin, so you actually have to like. Build in some uncertainty. One one of things about Austin is you can be pretty confident how long it's going to take you to get somewhere. Doesn't really work in DC. Aha. Uh-huh. So uh, so twelve fifteen is the official start time. Where we, we, won't, be? we won't hit uh, recording right then. Don't tell them that. No, you're right. You're right. Show at twelve fifteen. Or yes. well, I will say this: if well, let me explain first the logistics, and then I'll get back to that point. Twelve fifteen. <laughs> where at American University, Washington College of Law. Hey, that sounds familiar. You might know the way there, Steve. I used to teach there. Is this the Tinleytown campus? This is the this is the still brand new, new car smell, uh, stunning Tenleytown campus, right in Tenley Circle. the The podcast itself is going to be in Yuma Hall, which is the the northernmost of the three building campus. You can enter from either Tenley Circle or Yuma Street. I mean, room 401, Yuma Hall. Okay, so this is a take the red Yuma. line, go to the, the Tenley campus. Don't get confused Ooh, about where you're going. Take the red line? Town, isn't yeah. that? Do you know how Metro is functioning these days? Oh, don't, so, get Lyft. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, or a scooter. I want to see uh, like oh, a line of people, Although, of listeners you know, the scooter, coming up Wisconsin on scooters. All these scooters now, like in the, in the road during rush hour. Anyway, so listen, if you uh, the, the, the street address is 4100 Yuma Street Northwest. The red line stop is the Tenley Town AU 
metro stop. Um, if you're really taking the metro, you want the west side escalator, not the east side escalator, just to, you know. Okay. Now, this is all thanks to our dear friend and colleague, Professor Jen Daskal at American University, who is awesome and is hosting us and helping us with the logistics. And, and will be our special guest. Yeah, and she's going to be forced to, to, to <laughs> sit with us and be part of the show as, a, <laughs> as payback for her troubles. Um, so we're excited to broadcast on the 14th with Jen. And we hope Come we'll see, see some of you there. Yeah. It, so, it would be pretty sad if we go to all this trouble and like six people show up. Right. So that gets to this to the other thing you got to note. If you want to come to this, we are going to put into our show notes and we will tweet out later and incessantly the link to an Eventbrite RSVP uh, page. And we're simply trying to figure out like which size room, what how, how many uh, you know snacks and drinks to bring in there. We want to know whether it's going to be crowded or not. We're feeding people? You're just changing stuff on the fly now, buddy. I'm, I just thought we – I'll talk to Jen about that. Jen, if you're listening, <laughs> I, uh, Strauss Center will uh, pay for some snacks. I, I do I do hear that they have uh, drinking water in Washington, D.C. That's actually why we're doing this, right? So Which can... distinguishes Washington, D.C. from Austin. Can I just tell you, if if you listen to yesterday's episode yeah. and then compare how I sound today, and I may sound like so much more awake. You do. I do. It's because I found <laughs> Stooth Coffee had their espresso machine working, and the lattes were pouring, and so I've been there this morning so happily back in coffee so, so, land so so folks if you don't know uh the city of austin all million of us have been under a boil water advisory since sunday um and with no end in sight um and, and i have to say I, i'm a little confused about the coffee version of this because i thought part of making coffee is boiling water anyway yeah, yeah. So the problem is, at least for folks like me who love a good latte, yeah. the steaming of the milk, usually the machine is hooked up to a, uh, a line, you know, for tap line. Yeah, yeah. And it's not something you just pour some bottled or fresh water No, no, I know. The but the steam isn't, isn't Yeah, but they're not, boi- they're not boiling. I don't think it's sitting in there at a three-minute boil, right? Uh, so anyways, all I, all I know is technology. every place I went to all week was like, <laughs> we don't have any lattes. Yeah. Um, well, but, it's, been, it's been fascinating to see, like, which restaurants have just closed, which restaurants have, like, a limited menu. Starbucks is like, yeah, no drinks but come buy our food. Well, you know what's really cool? So let's talk critical infrastructure and resilience. It turns out all our bazillions of microbreweries around here, <laughs> all the breweries have been donating basically space. They've shut down their own production in order to have their um, their facilities boiling water on a large scale and then shipping it out to all their rest, all the restaurants in town. And that's how a lot of places are functioning huh. right now. It's really cool, actually. I actually thought you were just going to say people have just been surviving on beer. Well, that also, like I said, in the early Republic, I don't remember if I said it on the air yesterday, but it certainly was the case in the early Republic when water supplies could be dicey. That was one reason why people drank all day. There were other reasons. There were other reasons. All right, so listen, so we will put the Eventbrite in the show notes. We will put it on Twitter. We will remind you incessantly between now and November 14th. But if you're in D.C. and if you're free at lunch on Wednesday, November 14th, mark your calendars. Come on up to Tenley Circle. There's a you know brand new Chick-fil-A right there if, if we're not going to feed you. Mm. Um, there's a Whole Foods. I mean, there's lots of good stuff in Tenley Circle. Um, I can show you my old office. I think uh, Beck, are you, are you offer Beck tours? Hamilton has it now. Um, <laughs> on my left, your right, is where I taught for exactly one semester. There you go. Because this is the thing. The building had been in the plans for, for years and years and years. We actually only got into it my very, very, very last semester. You missed out. I really did. Well, you're not doing too bad here with this uh, particular office we're sitting in. Listen, I love my office. I love UT. I will say that I actually think if it comes to the sort of niceness of the facilities, especially outside of the faculty office context, I don't think UT can hold a candle to those mighty, mighty eagles. Fortunately, we have sunny days in the winter well, and tacos and brisket to compensate. Right, as, as I look outside at our 75 degree crystal clear. Yes, it is. It's going to be a nice weekend. So um, maybe if we're lucky, we'll show up at that event with some T-shirts to hand out because, folks, we're nearing Stop the end. Stop promising things. I just said maybe. 
I got qualified. I'm a good lawyer. Um, maybe it's possible. There's a possibility that we will have the T-shirts. Guys, the there's uh, a possibility that I will have a million dollars to hand out to people. Unless you won the Powerball, I think That's not. That's a billion dollars. Unless you bought a ticket in South Carolina, probably not. So um, we have sold so far 204 T-shirts Whoa. through our campaign, and it's raised $2,900. And, like, and only like 150 of those to you and me. <laughs> That's right. Now, that would spare me a lot of laundry. I could just roll through T-shirts every day. Same. I'd be like, uh, be like Steve Jobs, like my look. The black shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, wait, wait. You have a look. What? Um, I'm afraid to ask this question, but what is my look? Your look. Your look is. Your look is. You know, either a, a nice pair of jeans or slacks, uh-huh. right? A button-down fair. shirt and, uh-huh. a, and a sports jacket. That's the bot. That is the Bobby look. That actually, that's that's fair because the first year I taught at Wake Forest, uh, the last day of class, as as a sort of a surprise, some students came in, sort of a one of these like surprise the professor deals, and a guy comes into class just like me, late, wearing blue jeans, brown blazer, and uh, it really, and he kind of stormed to the front of the class, started monkeying with the projector, getting everything turned on, and I just sat down and watched for a while, and he imitated me for a good five minutes. Now, now mind you, you have a consistent look, right? I have two looks. I have the, You have, like, I'm going to play basketball. I have the I'm going to play basketball look, which is every day, basically, that I'm not teaching or speaking or doing anything where I have to look nice. And that's basically t-shirt, shorts, flip-flops, baseball hat. Yep. Um, and then I've got the, oh, wait, Check. <laughs> I actually have to teach today, which is more like jeans, um, dr- uh, boat shoes, Either a button down or a polo, depending upon the weather. And I actually brush my hair. You you clean up real nice. Oh yeah, real nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, until Halloween, you can still order the T-shirts. We'll keep tweeting out the link for the custom ink page. Uh, let's see if we can't get the uh, the benefit to ALS Texas, the charitable benefit over three thousand dollars. We're really close now, which is really awesome. All right. Uh, back, back to, to FISA. Back to FISA. When when last or a quick recap at the end of yesterday's <laughs> lesson. Uh, lesson. We, Lesson. Show. Show. It was, it's too entertaining to be a, a lesson. And, and too non-substantive. <laughs> True. Um, we, we basically had brought, uh, we hope we brought you up to the point of equilibrium that was created in the, the late 70s through the 80s and 90s, where um, the executive branch no longer had to worry about whether the previously warrantless domestically conducted foreign intelligence collection activity in the nature of electronic surveillance. Well, I'll, I'm just going to say wiretapping, though it's obviously broader than that. Um, but wiretapping for foreign intelligence had previously been conducted without a warrant. There had always been an executive branch position that it was perfectly constitutional to do it that way on the theory that foreign intelligence collection, unlike law enforcement, uh, for whatever reason, that that should not trigger the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment. That was something the Supreme Court never blessed. And so there was always litigation risk that that position would come unwound. That plus the huge legitimacy crisis brought on by congressional investigations and media leaks that exposed a lot of domestically based foreign intelligence uh, justified or ostensibly justified collection activity uh, created a real problem that was solved by FISA. Um, and in return, the American public, uh, or the, the let's say the collective interest in privacy, what it got in return was Article Three judges supervising the determination as to whether or not the targets of this domestically conducted collection really were agents of foreign powers, or at least whether there really was probable cause to show that. So grand bargain, stable for decades, right? Um, so, Steve, that's the end, and all we're here to d- say today is <laughs> we got an equilibrium, and it's stuck. Can, can I say, well, no, but can I say one more thing before we flip of over? Of course. So I think it's worth stressing this because we talked about Carter Page yesterday, and I think it's worth just sort of being as clear as possible. The whole theory behind FISA 
is not to produce evidence that that will hold up in that will that, that will necessarily hold up in court and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the target of the FISA warrant is in fact an agent of foreign power because that's not something you do in court, right? The the criminal proceeding would be proving that they had actually committed a crime. The FISA warrant is about showing that there's enough good cause for the government to believe that the individual in question is an agent of a foreign power. That doesn't end up, Bobby, usually getting tested, right? So, right. so for better or for worse, and I, I think mostly for better, right, that's the system you have. And so when folks say, well, you know, no one ever proved that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power, I say that wasn't what the law required. No, no what it requires is no more and no less right. than that there be probable cause to believe he might be, in which case we should be surveilling to f- further determine what's happening. And this is where I think we get to one of the first big shifts after 9-11. And the whole idea was actually, unlike a typical search warrant in a typical criminal case, these were not in the run of things meant to be generating evidence to be used in criminal investigations, there were procedures that would allow that evidence to be used. But Bobby, I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say no one expected that to be the norm. Oh, certainly not. No, and quite the contrary. That That's normally not what becomes of a foreign intelligence investigation. All right. So the last thing we talked about yesterday was the wall. Yeah, maybe we should start there. The wall. I think it's fair to say Build that what the we're going to do in this episode is, is pick some of the major developments, one of which is the wall, one of which is uh, the terrorist surveillance program in 702. Yep. Um, Section 215 metadata collection is another thing. Snowden, sort of a cross-cutting horizontal band across those latter two ones and probably a few other items along the way. But let's talk about the wall story, which in a way kind of stands on its own as apart from the 702 and 215 story. So the wall has its origins, as we talked about yesterday, in cases in the 1980s principally where a couple of circuit courts and a couple of district courts in interpreting whether there was a foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment all basically, all basically said, yes, but only so long as the primary purpose of the foreign intelligence surveillance is, I'm sorry, the primary purpose of the search, right? The yes. primary purpose of the surveillance is the gathering of foreign intelligence surveillance. The whole idea being that the, the reason why the courts did this was because the fear behind recognizing a foreign intelligence surveillance exception was that that could be used as a pretext for ordinary law enforcement work. And so the primary purpose requirement was meant to mitigate, ameliorate, you know, perhaps even totally account for that fear by saying, no, 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 we'll recognize this exception, but only so long as the reason why you're invoking the exception is because of an investigation that is primarily a foreign intelligence surveillance investigation. And it, Steve, is it fair to say that, so that constitutional analysis, which the Supreme Court never gets to weigh in on, the reason why it never comes to a head in the Supreme Court to test whether that's the right answer is because then along comes FISA responding to these political and policy pressures. And turns out there's a warrant of sorts, but a uh, a Keith-style warrant is therefore created. Of course, it's not a warrant. It's an order. But it, it fills that space, and it seems to moot the question. Because right, because the, the theory is that if the, if the government has a FISA warrant, then they're actually not conducting, or FISA order, they're not actually conducting what the Fourth Amendment views as warrantless surveillance. Exactly so. And so the issue that was there in the 70s, and that the circuit courts were coming down in the government's favor on, subject to the primary purpose test, just sort of disappears and one of the themes we want to come to here is, well, wait a minute, is, isn't that constitutional issue, it's been latent all these decades, isn't it still there? The reason that matters is that in the interim decades, the whole debate about primary purpose 
started to become framed in statutory terms. So here's here's what happened pre 9-11, and then we'll get into what changes afterwards. Um, suffice to say that there wasn't a lot of pressure or discussion, certainly no public discussion about how to how to act under the primary purpose test during the uh, the, the first decade of FISA. It's mm-hmm. not it's not considered something controversial, though. What's going on beneath the surface is that the government is interpreting, and the FISA court is, is accepting that the FISA statute should be best read to incorporate the primary purpose test. Now, the words primary purpose don't, didn't appear as such in original FISA. There is a certification requirement where the, one of the things the attorney general had to certify was that um, the language is a purpose right. is foreign intelligence. Or and the purpose. Was it the purpose? It was I, a, I think it was a, a purpose. purpose. It was, and it was construed to mean the same thing that the courts had said the Fourth Amendment was requiring. A, the primary purpose is foreign intelligence. But, but construed only by the Justice Department, right? I mean, and, and presumably with no objection from the FISA court, right? The FISA court never said, no, no, you guys are you guys are being too no, hard that's on yourselves. Right. So, and I think this all made a ton of sense. I mean, basically, the statute wasn't drafted with the dual investigative right. purpose issue in mind. But since the Fourth Amendment case law was very robust and out there on this issue, it made sense to interpret the statute this way. It wasn't a big deal until the Aldrich Ames spy case, where ultimately the prosecution of Aldrich Ames it, it worked, but there was a really close call, or at least what was perceived to be a really close call involving the possibility that some key FISA-derived evidence wouldn't actually be usable at trial. It might even, this might even undermine the whole prosecution of this person who very much needed to be convicted mm-hmm. um, because of laxity in policing against crossing that primary purpose line. That is, intel- foreign intelligence and law enforcement investigators uh, having enough collaboration and cross-coordination to where there was space for Ames to argue that the primary purpose test had been violated. Now, that basically was a shot across the bow that, that I think sent a chill through the Justice Department, resulting in articulation of a, of a newly in, uh, invigorated policy about avoiding that problem in the future. And I think it's critical to be clear that I think uh, Jamie Gorlick had the memo uh, as Deputy Attorney General describing this. I think the memo is very clear that there's still supposed to be coordination. You shouldn't seal off the worlds of foreign intelligence collection and law enforcement collection from each other such that you have two different uh, stovepipes that don't know what each other knows. And yet that's largely what happened. Right. But so the, the memos, the memos clear that there still should be coordination, right. but it then nonetheless articulated a lot of what I would describe as managerial prescriptions to make sure that we're being very careful not to run the risk that we had in the Ames case. And, and in practice, that meant a lot of DOJ supervision and a lot of signaling to people at the investigator and prosecutor levels. You need to be really careful not to accidentally create a fact pattern where the defendant later could argue that a foreign intelligence investigation became law enforcement, yet you were still using FISA-based surveillance. This then takes on a life of its own. And, and this is an important point that's hard to teach law students, but we, I think, know we both try to emphasize. There's the academically most accurate description of what the law in a statute or what a, what a legal policy is best read to mean. And then there's the lived experience of the people operating under that regime. And sometimes a, a culture of beliefs about where the legal lines are can emerge. Sometimes a culture of belief about Never mind the legal lines. Here's, as a managerial matter, what's going to happen in your career if you don't bear in mind the following considerations. These sorts of dynamics begin to come into play. And more and more, as the 90s progressed, uh, more and more began to seem that there was a wall that had to exist between law enforcement and foreign intelligence investigations. And in the minds of some agents and, and some attorneys, this wall was high and robust indeed. 
this is something that post 9-11 would come in for fierce criticism and blame from, among others, the 9-11 Commission uh, in its investigative report. One of the key features identified as a fault and a flaw in the system was the belief in this wall being more robust than the law actually required and thus preventing useful and necessary sharing of information about al-Qaeda between foreign intelligence and criminal investigators. Indeed, there's, there's a heavy amount of blame here. And, and as a consequence, one of the, one of the immediate uh, lessons learned in the post-9-11 period was believed to be that that wall had to come down and it had to come down right away. So how do you do that? There's, there's two things you can do or that were done. And I would argue that these were both important steps, but also incomplete in a, in a way that's not often recognized. Uh, first, Attorney General Ashcroft, as a matter of DOJ policy directed for DOJ and FBI, that the wall comes down and far from being extra careful not to cross this line uh, in, in keeping with President Bush's directive about, uh, you know, the, the various priorities of counterterrorism in the aftermath of 9-11, that all, as much sharing as possible should be taking place, as much coordination. We can never have a situation again where counterterrorism knowledge, where dots are separated between the stovepipes, if you will. And then maybe more significantly than that, of course, the, the interpretation of FISA as imposing a primary purpose is still there. The USA Patriot Act included a change to FISA to override the or to alter the language that had become the statutory basis for the interpretation of it being a primary purpose test. They changed a purpose to a significant purpose with the express purpose, if you will, of making it clear that it's okay to have law enforcement even be the primary purpose as long as foreign intelligence gathering is somewhere in the case is significant in the case. Right now. If you're listening carefully, friends, you've noticed that there's one thing that didn't change and indeed couldn't change as a result of a statutory change or a DOJ policy change, and that is the Fourth Amendment analysis. <laughs> so if you go back to cases like the Fourth Circuit decision in Trung, which had said, you know, never mind FISA, if the Fourth Amendment is being uh, put under the, the microscope, and that's what we're asking about, the Fourth Amendment in a dual investigative purpose scenario requires that you switch to the law enforcement system when that becomes your primary purpose. Attorney General Ashcroft's directive, the USA Patriot Act, they did not and could not change that. So we've had a couple of decades experience and we've had this sort of question and lurking in the background. Does the switch to the, to the blend the investigations model, is it actually compatible with the Fourth Amendment? We've got, some, we've got case law going each way, though almost no one knows about the one part that favors the possibility that, in fact, this is a problem. Everyone knows about, everyone who follows this, knows about the part that says this is not a problem. And Steve, do you want to say something about the, the way that the wall and the primary purpose test is treated by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review? Well, so so this is, I mean, this all culminates. So the Patriot Act is October 26, 2001, right? United and strengthening America by providing the appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Ooh, nice. Um, and the and, and the stories I recall is that the House bill was the, like the USA Act. It was, and the Senate bill was the Patriot Act. They were just like, let's just combine them. Like, um, this would be so much better. It's like a, it's like the uh, Reese's Pieces kind of thing. Yeah, let's combine these or like compound nouns in German. Um, <laughs> so the so so what ends up happening is sometime I think early the following year, early two thousand two, um, there's a whole sort of messy fight in the FISA court. We're not privy to all of it. I think we just know about the ultimate decision um, under the caption, in re all matters submitted to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. <laughs> um, and the FISA court pushes back a little bit um, on sort of the scope of the amended 
certification requirement and raises some Fourth Amendment concerns, so it doesn't actually strike it down. Um, and then this produces the first ever um, inter- appeal to the FISA Court of Review, right? The FISA Court of Review is, is contemplated by the 1978 Act. It had never actually convened. Right. And, and so some people call it the Fisker, F-I-S-C-O-R, Fisker. the yeah. Fisker. So the Fisker convenes, and it's it's parallel to the the, the Fisk, which is it's it's a it's a sort of a moonlighting job for three circuit art, judges. Yeah, Article Three judges who are appointed to the task one at the circuit by, level. One of whom, by the way, is Judge Silberman, who had testified in 1978 about why he thought FISA was unconstitutional. See, we told you that the characters from the 70s would show up again totally. in the post 11 environment. I mean, hey, um, what uh, uh, Cheney was? Wait, who was? No, Rumsfeld was. Ford's chief, chief of staff, staff right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so so the FISA Court Review rules in a decision called In Re Sealed Case um, in, I want to say, early 2003, late 2002, early 2003, I don't remember exactly when it is, um, that there's no constitutional infirmity with the relaxation of the purpose requirement in the statute. Yeah, and it explicit, I believe explicitly repudiates Trung on the ground, and all of it rooted in the uh characterization of what previously had been a binary choice, if you will, between criminal investigation and foreign intelligence investigation, Judge Silberman and colleagues say, no, 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 it's it's not an either or. It, it, it is often going to be both, and that right. these things aren't actually separate matters. Now, mind you, that's still in the context of a FISA warrant, right? And so so the, the 2000, I think, three decision in sealed case does not actually um, – alter does not does not reach the Fourth Amendment question for that when you don't have a warrant um, right what it really is is in the context of classic FISA FISA order even with the relaxed significant purpose requirement CLK says that does not violate the Constitution because of this blend so how, how about this framing of it um, whether you've got a FISA order or no order at all if what you're doing is not getting a law enforcement title three wiretap order based on probable cause yeah. related to crime, then you have a under the primary purpose test you have a problem whether you used FISA or not. Right. And the Fisker decision says, you know, Trung had it wrong about that primary pr- purpose business. It's okay as long as foreign intelligence is in there. That it's okay not to use the law enforcement model. So I, I guess it, maybe I'm nitpicking, but I would frame it slightly differently. All right. I don't think the court in the sealed case was reaching the question of the Fourth Amendment standard if there was no warrant. Um, no, no, right. I, I'm not saying they are. Yeah. But the logic, it doesn't matter whether you had the – either way, you don't have a law enforcement warrant. No, no, the proposition right. was you violate the Fourth Amendment if you don't have a law right. enforcement no, right, warrant. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's clearly sealed case could of that. I, I, I am not one of those who thinks that the subsequent Fisker decision in raid directives where the court actually says, indeed, the Fourth Amendment itself – doesn't require a primary purpose for the foreign intelligence. I'm not convinced that that follows from sealed case, right? That I, right. I actually think there's different work happening. But there. we should now that you've brought it up, it fits in the sequence now. Yeah. So you want to say something about that decision because so, it, it is the more recent Fisker decision. So, so Fisker has actually issued, I think, four decisions now in its history that we know about. Um, although the the last one was about standing, which is more Fed court's nerdiness. Um, yeah. So. The, the, the 2001, 2002, 2003 fight, that was all about classic FISA. And that was about whether the relaxation of the primary purpose requirement in the context of a classic FISA warrant raised Fourth Amendment problems. The culmination of that is Fisker says no. Um, the ACLU actually tried to get the Supreme Court to review that decision. Um, but, you know, the ACLU was just an amicus. There was no adverse party in Fisker. And so the Supreme Court said, you know, no. Yeah. Um, the, the next time we really hear from Fisker is on the far side of a whole bunch of intervening developments. 
um, including the TSP, right, the Terrorist yeah. Surveillance Program, which we will explain which we'll in great detail in yep. a moment. Um, the passage, and then the the Protect America Act, mm-hmm. which we'll is talk the, about all that, which is the precursor to the FISA Amendments Act. And in right directives is this 2008 Fisker decision about the constitutionality of the Protect America Act, where all of a sudden you had the government engaging in foreign intelligence surveillance without a warrant. Um, right, without anything looking like a warrant, this is the sort of modern directives uh, frame. Right, and so there, the question was fully presented about whether the exception to the warrant clause for foreign intelligence surveillance still required a primary purpose. And in that decision, in two thousand eight, Fisker says no. That the constitutional test, and not just the statutory test, yeah. even when there's no warrant at all of any kind, um, is only that the foreign intelligence surveillance be a significant purpose of the government of the government search. So here we have a really unusual kind of circuit split because the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, which is has, a circuit level court. It's a circuit level court and it's binding on, well, it's very specifically binding on the FISC itself. It is not binding on Article Three judges in the various districts and circuits in their ordinary capacities where these same issues might come up in a criminal prosecution where FISA evidence comes out. In that setting, these two Fisker decisions may be probative and, and pertinent, persuasive, but they're not controlling. And so other courts over time, in theory, could decide that the Fisker has it wrong and that actually the Trung decision had it right originally as a constitutional matter. To the best of my knowledge, there's only been one instance of this, and it's a really obscure but I think fascinating instance. It involves the prosecution of Brandon yes, Mayfield. I was, was going to say Mayfield. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Mayfield in the District of Oregon. Mayfield, this is a really incredible story where after the Madrid train bombings, Partial fingerprint analysis seemed, and I mean partial, seemed to implicate this guy who was a lawyer, an American, happened to be a Muslim, and he was arrested, I think, on a material witness warrant, um, basically widely and publicly identified as involved in the bombing. And as I understand it, it was purely mistake of uh, the, the forensics of the fingerprint analysis, just a horrible and tragic mistake, but of course, extremely harmful to him. Uh, he sues the government. Um, along the way, there is a question that arises uh, about whether or not uh, surveillance of him violated the primary purpose test. The district court judge at one point issues an opinion that's later later uh, vacated. But nonetheless, it did happen. Uh, basically saying Trung had it right. You had a law enforcement... Judge Brown, I think. Was it? I, yeah. don't, I don't know. Um, th- there was law enforcement equities and foreign intelligence equities, but it was it was across the primary purpose line. So if it was if that line was valid, then there should have been a wiretap order under Title III rather than a FISA order. And the court said this was this was the applicable law. The Fourth Amendment does require this test. It doesn't matter that DOJ has changed its policy. It doesn't matter what the FISA statute says. The Fourth Amendment requires it. So that that opinion was vacated. I've never seen it uh be resolved that way since then. But there's no reason tomorrow some district judge, and, and I would say if you're in the Fourth Circuit, Trunk's still the law of your circuit, so by there, the way. There's one reason. You said there's no reason. And I want to say there's one reason. What is that? Um, the government, for a while, had not actually been telling defendants um, that they had been using evidence derived from. So, so the. Uh, all right, well, the, sure. The, I mean, that's, yeah, a, but that, that's a reason. That's, it, 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 it doesn't speak to my legal analysis. No. That's a separate issue, but, but it's one we should talk about. I mean, what I'm trying to say is like you're not you're not saying that means that uh, legally speaking the analysis no, just, isn't, the issue, as I just no, described. No, I just saying the issue hasn't had a for a time the issue did not have a chance to arise, right? So so what the 
what this is all basically about, guys, is we're about to sort of explain the shift after 9-11 where Congress starts adding weapons to the FISA quiver um, that look different from classic FISA, where Congress is giving the government surveillance authorities under the guise of FISA, under the supervision of the FISA court, that are in meaningful ways not tied to individualized suspicion. Um, right, and that's where the fourth. That's where this question tends to arise because that's the context in which there isn't even a FISA warrant um, to satisfy the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment. Right, and so it is certainly true that you could have a criminal prosecution where evidence is derived from one of these authorities, and where the defendant moves to suppress successfully on the ground that the collection violated the Fourth Amendment because it fell outside the foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause. Um, the problem is that first, we haven't had that many of those prosecutions, and second, that for a time, the government had been um, shirking its obligation under FISA to notify defendants that evidence had, in fact, been derived from those authorities. So all I would say to that is it's it's true that there's this new world of 702 collection that we're going to talk about in a moment, and that there are these disclosure issues. Um, but it's But I don't want listeners to think that there have been the world of classic FISA where these opportunities, like Mayfield, uh, did come up and that that somehow went away or even was cut back no, it's from. No, they're still it's, there. We're talking about an additional layer. So I would submit that the, the opportunity to have a Mayfield-like result yes. is is absolutely still there. Yeah. Uh, but it won't, it'll be traditional, you know, it would have been on traditional FISA until Like a Hasbadrami or, or Mudarov. Or, right. So, so, the, so, so just the last thing I want to say about this before we get to the authorities, um, to be as clear as possible then, it is not settled Yes. In any court in the United States outside of the FISA court system, whether the foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause does in fact require a primary purpose, right? Save perhaps the Fourth Circuit under Trong, although even if, I, if I'm a Fourth Circuit, doesn't like Things have changed, right? You could, of course. I mean, every, every president that seems to bind can be distinguished. But, but at the at the very least, right? In every other circuit there is an open question as to whether the government is allowed to invoke the foreign intelligence surveillance exception when the pro- when it does not aver that the primary purpose of the surveillance is foreign intelligence surveillance collection. And, and, I'll, and I'll close by saying that I, I think this thing, you and I agree on that, and I think it's not widely appreciated even by people who work in this area because it does require looking back to right. some decades-old pre-existing precedent. And that is, and I want to say, I mean, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about the big open questions in our field. You know, does the AUMF cover ISIS? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would put, does the foreign intelligence surveillance exception require a primary purpose? Up there is one of the massively important unanswered questions of contemporary national security law. Concur. Woo-hoo. All right, we're agreeing too much. All I right. bet we can. I bet we can disagree some as to, as we turn our attention to the terrorist surveillance program. So, do you want to do TSP first, or do you want to do Lone Wolf? Um, Lone Wolf is fine. Yeah, because yeah, sure. Let's okay, do so, Lone Wolf. so one of the, the one of the things one of the weird things that happens, you get the Patriot Act in two thousand one. Congress, which is otherwise largely on the sidelines when it comes to the war on terrorism, is actually very engaged on surveillance questions. Absolutely. Um, which makes sense, right? Because the, the felt impact oftentimes has domestic equities in a different way. And so, for example, you get uh, IRTPA, right, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, which adds some authorities to FISA. And not what, to mention creating the DNI. Well, not to mention that. Um, you and your procedure. Um, and, and bureaucracy. <laughs> My institutions. I love them. <laughs> there you go. Um, how many things are you are you either the, the boss man or the assistant boss man of? Oh, you see a connection between my career choices <laughs> and my, uh, my academic interests. Or at least the lack of mine. I never thought about that. 
it before. Maybe the, maybe the absence of mine. So, <laughs> so the, uh, there's a lot to say about ERTPA. I, I want to flag, I, I think it was ERTPA that added the lone wolf provision. Um, uh, don't recall, but that could be right. Or it was sometime around then. And the lone wolf provision is actually just a definitional amendment to who can be targeted by a classic FISA warrant that actually... So before 9-11, FISA had already been amended to include foreign terrorist organizations um, as a foreign power that you can be an agent right. of. Right. So if we could show in 1995 that you're an agent of Hezbollah, great. It doesn't matter. Okay, Hezbollah is a bad example because of its involvement in Lebanon's governance. But it doesn't matter where, whether it's a state actor or non-state actor as long as it's foreign. And here's the key. It's an identifiable organization of that kind. Correct. All right. Um, the, the government pushes Congress to give it the authority to go after individuals who it cannot connect to a specific organization, but who it nevertheless suspects of international terrorism-related activity. And I would describe this basically as the Zacharias Moussaoui uh, provision, which it seems odd at first because people hear that name. I assume people still recognize the name of the originally perceived to be 20th hijacker for 9-11. Uh, Moussaoui caught inside the United States before 9-11. It was clear that something was up. If you know the details of the story, then you'll see the connection to the lone wolf provision. They uh, contacted French authorities, French intelligence, and our liaison partners shared information that made it clear that as it as it seemed from the limited limited evidence we had in the United States, this guy was in fact involved with uh, militant extremist Islam. Um, he had been involved in certain certain uh, social networks and certain training situations and had certain ties. It made it clear he was probably a violent jihadi. However. They, you couldn't show there wasn't sufficient evidence to establish probable cause that he was an agent of a specifically identifiable organization like Al-Qaeda. This is why I mentioned yesterday in our, our first episode, um, it was not possible to persuade the authorities back in D.C. to go to the FISA court to make an agent of a foreign power showing. Their view was, look, he, he clearly seems to be a dangerous and bad person who's, who's involved. He has an international angle. He's involved in the extremist Islamist movement, but but you can't show he's an agent of a specifically identifiable foreign power. And so they didn't go the FISA route. And bearing in mind the primary purpose test, you wouldn't necessarily want to turn right away to trying the law enforcement route if you were imagining that if you just wait, more information will arise and you'll be able to stay on the foreign intelligence path. Because once you go the Title III law enforcement investigative route, well, looks like your primary purpose must be prosecution rather than foreign intelligence gathering. So they didn't go either route. And then, of course, 9-11 attacks followed, and a lot of blame gets cast retroactively on that set of choices. All right, so... Um, now, I just want to say, I mean, I think, but I think the loan provision was controversial, right? Because it was seen as giving the government too much authority to depart from the sort of more easily defensible avenues, right? That, that yes, you can conjure up a fact scenario where there would be a gap in the existing authorities, but if you're worried about these authorities being used as a pretext... Um, divorcing the target from having to be related to some kind of foreign government or foreign group cause for concern. Now, the irony, if I remember this right, and correct me if I'm wrong, when this provision was reauthorized at some point, um, it was publicly reported that it had never been used, uh, right? And, and this led to folks on the Hill saying, well, wait a second, how can you say it's so terribly important and at the same time tell us you've never used it, right? Right. Well, so to me, I think that the subsequent events, you know, you fast forward a decade yeah. and the peak of Islamic State inspired but not directed and controlled violence where you may have, uh, I think it's fair to say, we, around the United States and Europe, you had a 
wave of concern in, in quite justified concern about foreign individuals and also domestic individuals, but also foreign individuals who were not under the direction and control and therefore not agents of a yeah. foreign power, yeah. but who were foreign and who were plotting uh, terrorist attacks. And that's exactly the scenario the lone wolf provision uh, would encompass. And so I think, subs- ironically, they didn't have particular events other than Musawi, I suppose, as, as evidence of why you needed it. But I think they were proved right over time and why, in fact, this was a, an important piece in the, in the arsenal to have that option. Yeah, I'll just say that I think, um, as is so often the case in this context, how you feel about the substantive authorities really, I think, is driven by how confident or you are or not in how those authorities are supervised. Right? That, 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 that I can tell a story about how these authorities could be abused if they were not adequately supervised by the various processes that are in place to supervise them. And then the question becomes, are those processes sufficient? That to me, and I think we may not get to it today, is the real sort of, to me, the real upshot of the Snowden story. But before we get there. I oh, completely agree. And actually, I think this is worth pausing on, especially if, as I think you're right. Look, this, there will be a deeper dive to follow. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, actually, like, I think a, deep, I get off this a deep dive on Snowden as a story would be very worthy. So maybe we'll do that. Um, uh, so the reason I wanted to pause on this is that in giving presentations about the Snowden story, I often wrap the discussion with the set of slides where I kind of put on the board one by one possible reasons because there are different reasons why people might not like what they learn about different aspects of our surveillance architecture. One is, and one everybody should share at all times, is risk of abuse. You should always be worried about that. No, no one should, no one should, people are not angels. And so we should always be worried about abuse. And that leads to just the point you made, which is the million dollar question when that's your central policy concern is, how good are the guardrails? Do we think they're calibrated tightly enough? Um, that's not the only concern. And so one utility of framing out your policy concerns piece by piece is to say, here's risk of abuse. But over here is, the, I don't really care if there's going to be abuse or not. I don't want the government knowing this in this circumstance, right? Uh, more of an absolute privacy type concern. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what happens in these debates is that someone's more motivated by that absolute objection, whereas the government or the, the defender of the government position or the status quo of the legal architecture says, but look, there's no abuse or look, there's going to be relatively little abuse because these are well-calibrated safeguards across the run of cases. Those people are talking past each other. Yep. And that's a big part of why these debates tend to seem frustrating, I think. I think that's right. Okay. All right. So um, you want to talk about the TSP? I do. And I want to, I want to begin with some background because I think it's really critical to see uh, how the post-9-11 development emerges out of some very specific debates that I think are best understood by reading the book by Charlie Savage, Power Wars. Power Wars, which is now in its second and revised edition, is a really great book for national security law nerds. And some of y'all hit us up on Twitter from time to time mentioning uh, an interest in book recommendations, diving deeper, if you will, into some of the stuff. Go just start with Charlie Savage, Power Wars, get the revised updated edition. But one thing you'll find in there is some great backstory that I think really does a nice job of narrating some of the things that otherwise seem dry and hard to put together. Let me try to distill this. And this is all, you know, this is all really building off of stuff Charlie's reported there and elsewhere. Um, at the time FISA's created in 1978, you got to bear in mind what the technology was and how the existence of telecommunications technologies at that time interacted with the definitional scope of what had to get a FISA order and what did not. Because as we said yesterday, no one at the time who was involved in crafting FISA and supporting it and making it law, no one was trying to pull into the FISA individual probable cause determination framework 
the sort of the bread and butter job of NSA of monitoring foreign to foreign communications outside the United States. Everyone was trying to leave that realm untouched. Everyone was definitely trying to touch and subject to FISA targeting of U.S. persons from collecting within the United States. And then there were these edge cases, right, where you've got maybe a foreign to domestic communication or a domestic to foreign communication. And there you get into the weeds of the statute, which we are not going to do, um, to figure out whether FISA nonetheless applies. And there's elements of, well, geographically, where is the collection taking place? Citizenship-wise or U.S. person status-wise, who's the target? Uh, the upshot of it all is that under the status quo at the time the statute's enacted, the government is left with, for the most part, the ability to carry on warrantlessly without individualized targeting collection conducted outside the United States where the communication may be going into the United States, maybe coming out of the United States, but the target is foreign and the collection's taking place outside the United States. And, and that was a big chunk of those one-end foreign or one-end domestic uh, communications at the time because we're mostly talking about telephone calls, transiting transoceanic copper cables, the old, the old coaxial cable model. Um, for whatever reason, as Charlie reports it, we had a pretty good ability to do that from the ocean. Right. You didn't have to be in San Francisco, New York, at the at the receiving station, sitting there in cooperation with the telecommunications provider, uh, attaching equipment there on U.S. soil. If you had, you would trigger FISA. That's on a wire. It's a collection inside the United States. That'd be a problem. But it was no problem because we could do it from outside the United States. Now, things start to change and it sets off debates. Uh, the big change comes with the rise of fiber optic cables replacing uh, replacing and updating the way the global telecommunications network works. Um, first, there's foreign to foreign communications that happen to be touching U.S. soil. Uh, and there's a real convenient, what you might call home field advantage opportunity that comes from this, where uh, as long as the telecom company is willing to cooperate with the government, the government can go into that AT&T facility uh, and, and monitor that foreign to foreign traffic. And because it's foreign to foreign, even though it's taking place, even though the capture is going on within the United States, the government's perspective is, well, that, that shouldn't be covered by FISA because it's there's no U.S. person equities. We just happen to have a convenience factor here. There's an internal debate about whether the statute by its terms should apply there and ultimately resolved in the view pre-9-11 that, no, by its terms, if it's really foreign to foreign communications and you just happen to be taking advantage of a chance to grab it in New York or San Francisco, that doesn't require a warrant. But if it's a foreign to domestic, and yeah, it's super convenient to do it from within the United States, but nonetheless, that clearly would require uh, the FISA application process. So the status quo uh, for a while there was you could do a little bit of domestic collection, but it couldn't be something that you understood to be a communication coming into or going out of a person, a recipient or sender in the U.S. And that was an important distinction with the rise of uh, the Internet packet switching technology, the the nature of what people were communicating and where they were communicating, more and more it became the case that you had a, you had a real home field advantage on those foreign to foreign communications. But um, critically, with certain aspects of the technology, and I'm not in a position to describe this, I don't really understand it, but it's been at least reported by Charlie that because of fiber optic technology, the ability to do the external overseas collection on those one-end domestic communications got more and more difficult, and it became more and more important to explore the possibility of trying to do it from within the United States, where in fact it'd be quite easy. Um, 
and the uh, the government pre 9/11 decided they weren't going to try to push that envelope. It was it was determined that this would clearly implicate FISA, so we can't do it. Maybe you should seek a statutory amendment, but no one did. Enter 9/11, right? So the 9/11 attacks come along. The imperative to collect as much as possible about uh, foreign source threats within the United States is the highest priority of the administration, and NSA Director Mike Hayden certainly knows this. Um, off the right off the bat, he's maximizing such authorities as he does already have under existing law. Uh, but the question arises: What about that potential expansion of the home field advantage to capture one-in domestic calls? How about that? Suffice to say that it was clear, as the statute had long since been interpreted to, to apply in that circumstance, that you you would need individualized applications. And that, that could be done uh, sometimes when you knew p- particularly who you were targeting and you thought you had enough of a showing to make a probable cause determination. Uh, but you could hardly do that at high speed and at large scale, which was perceived to be a problem. And for better or worse, and people obviously differ passionately about this, uh, President Bush directed that the NSA proceed to try to collect those one-in foreign, one-in domestic communications from within the United States without going to get FISA court orders. And, and some, some have called that the President's Surveillance Program. I think the name most, most commonly used these days is the Terrorist Surveillance Program, or TSP. So, Steve, there's, there's the TSP, comes into being. Um, should we pause here to talk about why it was illegal? <laughs> that wasn't necessarily the way I was going to put it, but that's certainly the topic I was going to raise. Um, so what about the analysis? Later on, eventually, when, when it gets leaked to the New York Times and it becomes public, eventually we then Am get... Like December 2005? I, I forget exactly when, but it does become public. And that's a sort of a the Snowden-like moment for the, for the early post-9-11 period about surveillance law. And eventually we get uh, insight into what the government's position is. We get a white is. paper. Yeah, we get a white paper. Like, why is this okay? And there's a there's a statutory argument. There's a constitutional argument. And I believe you are not a fan of either one. I'm not a fan of either one. Talk to me. So the basic argument came in two pieces. Um, piece number one was that the president had inherent constitutional authority to conduct warrantless foreign intelligence surveillance, even on U.S. soil. Can I pause there to yeah. tease out the distinction between arguments about Article Two constitutional authority to affirmatively do something yes. in the absence of a, a statutory constraint? I haven't gotten to the constraints yet. Oh, I, did, I thought okay, good. So, so, so the so the white paper. If you actually go back and this is the what is it? The January two thousand and six. I'm trying to find the title. Um, Legal authority supporting the activities of the National Security Agency described by the president. Um, it's like, the president described some stuff. We better we better come up with a white paper. Right. So it leads with the argument that all things being equal, the president has inherent unilateral authority to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance. Right. Do you quibble with that? Um I think it's a. I think it's not as, as self-evident as the white paper makes it out to seem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's you know. I get queasy when that authority is exercised on U.S. soil. What if we break it down into two different questions? Does the president have inherent authority to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance generally without Congress delegating that power to him? I think that's an obvious yes. So I think it's an obvious yes if the targets of the surveillance are non-U.S. persons outside the United States. I think I get nervous about when the targets are U.S. persons and or in the United States. So so just to tease that distinction out further, there, there is this baseline question, is foreign intelligence gathering 
simply as a general category? Is that something that the executive branch only does if Congress expressly tells it to or implicitly tells it to? I think not at all. Obviously, it's, I think, inherent in the the, the many powers of the president that relate to national defense. Um, the questions become, okay, fine, as a general category, but what about when you're doing things within the United States under that general heading or that impact Fourth Amendment equities? That's so, where it gets interesting. And I think it's hard, right? Now, the, the, the good thing is that in this case, we don't have to decide that question because Congress had occupied the field. So it's not just – so the White Paper argues – First, that there's inherent authority. Second, that there's statutory authority, that basically you can justify this program under either the AUMF um, or FISA itself. And I think you and I agree that those are not necessarily the most compelling arguments. Well, let's let's take them in sequence because right, so we'll agree more on one than the other. All right, I think we agree completely let's go on with, this. Let's go with the, the FISA statute itself, which okay. I think is the easiest case. Oh, really? You don't you think the AUMF is harder? Okay. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. So uh, the FISA statute I don't think is, is a good argument at all because it's very clear that there is an express exception in the text of FISA from the beginning that says in case of a declaration of war – Right. Um, then there's an emergency exception. There, there's an emer- there's a general emergency exception. And there's a war declaration. Yeah, exactly. A war exception. And, and no one argues. So I would say that the, the easy statutory interpretation argument is that the intent, the express statement of Congress, what was made law, was that this applies at all times. We're mindful that there need to be some emergencies and some war-related exceptions. And the trigger for the war-related exception is stated to be a formal declaration. Mm-hmm. So that's not satisfied. Nope. So FISA itself doesn't contain an exception for this uh, for this scenario. We don't. We clearly don't have the enumerated exceptions. The harder question is: Okay, nonetheless, though, does the enactment of the 2001 AUMF bring with it sufficient authorities as a later in time statute to um, implicitly override that provision of FISA? So let's talk about that. Okay. Um, do you do you view as so so that let's remind everyone that the AUMF is a very short sixty word operative provision says the president's authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force right against those persons organizations etc. nine eleven um, do you believe that foreign intelligence surveillance by civilians is necessary and appropriate force yes in this context if See, I don't abs- I think it's a no brainer that the the let's use the Hamdi model of what are the traditional incidents of war fighting uh, detention of enemy combatants in that case surveillance of enemy communications to me is a no brainer included within this and the fact that it might be con- so first of all any NSA conducted surveillance is a DOD activity NSA is not a civilian agency um, secondly even if you had FBI doing it the FBI's role in monitoring um, enemy communications or investigating enemy activities on the home front is, is amply demonstrated, for example, in World War II and in prior conflicts. So I, I have no trouble. And, and so, and so, but whoa, 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 whoa. I, I said something he didn't like. Declarations of war and AUMS are not the same thing, right? So Sure. So, well, we're going to get to that. That's that's where I actually will come back around to your position. Oh, the, that, that the AUMF is not, is not a sufficiently all-encompassing declaration my, my, of war. Just to, to cut to the chase, I yeah. think the problem is this idea of the, the later-in-time statute overriding the clear terms of FISA. So FISA says, look, there's, there is going to be wartime need to surveil uh, without using this particular uh, constraint mechanism. Right. And they make the trigger very clearly a declaration of war. And the AUMF doesn't— At a time when they knew. Right? I mean, let's be clear, right? Yeah. That, that unlike old statutes like the Alien Enemy Act. No, right. This is right? 1978. Like, they, knew declaration, they knew that by choosing declarations of war, that was not Vietnam. Yeah, this is post-Vietnam. Right. And it's post-Korea. So they know whereof—they understand the situation. And they understand the declaration of war is a, is a 
fraught, freighted, right. high standards. So, so my view would be that it can an AUMF, can any subsequent statute override the requirement that it be a declaration? Sure. Yes. But you have to say it. Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah, but if oh, that's I, I I totally accept that argument. Okay, good, right? And so like, if, oh, I, oh, I thought I thought you were saying the two thousand one AUMF on its own was sufficient, and that's right. That's right. No, I got I, the train. but 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 a lot of the criticism, and I think it's important. A lot of the criticism has tried to suggest that surveillance, uh, whether FBI conducted, military conducted, otherwise, that anything domestic surveillance wise just is not somehow uh, doesn't have a nexus and isn't part and parcel of war fighting or the armed conflict with Al-Qaeda. And I think that's totally wrong. Oh, no, I agree with the that. The problem is just that FISA adopted, for better or worse, a really narrow constraint. So not just FISA, right? So this is what I want to get into. So I actually think the statute that really causes the most trouble for the TSP um, is I mean, it was amended by FISA, but it was actually originally part of Title Three of the 1968 Act, right? It was codified at 18 U.S.C. 2511 2F. Um, oh, the old 2F argument. The old 2F argument, um, which at the time provided that, quote, the procedures in this chapter, by the way, that's, I think, part of ECPA. Um, so I, 1986 ECPA? Yeah, I think so. Um, the procedures in this chapter and FISA shall be the exclusive means by which electronic surveillance may be conducted. Ooh, well, so 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 here's the problem, right? I'm that's just a statute, right? A later in time statute can override an earlier in time statute. I don't have any problem right. with that. But when you have a, a rule like that one, right? Clear statements come into being, and, and so it's like an, there's a we talk about the non detention act in the context of the 2001 AUMF. Here is a sort of non surveillance act, right? Outside, uh, you know, if you're going to surveil, you have to use title, you know, you have to use ECPA or the SCA or FISA, and the White Paper's principal argument about 2511, other than that it was trumped by later statutes, which you and I think both disagree with, is that it was unconstitutional. And this was, I think, the the height of the commander-in-chief override. Right. So that gets to the part that's most interesting, yes. I think, to talk about all this. So what we've done so far is map where the statutory constraints on the By the way, there's, there's are. no way we're going to be done in this episode. No, no. We'll just okay. we'll, we'll roll. <laughs> we'll, we don't know if we're going to finish 702. So we're not, actually, it's, we're not going to get to 702. <laughs> you're right about that. That's all right. We'll dive deeper. So... Hopefully we'll be done before the live episode in DC. <laughs> uh, FISA part eleven. So 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 far we've seen that there there clearly were long recognized statutory problems with this type of home field advantage expansion um, in peacetime, and now we see that there are also constraints even if it's wartime. That you, there's room for reasonable debate yeah, yeah, here. It's yeah, just yeah. I think we agree that the better argument is in our legal architecture of liberty. When it comes Ooh, to that's these, pretty. thank you. Our legal architecture of liberty. When it comes to these sort of high stakes scenarios, um, it's not that you can't change it. It's not even that Congress can't come along and say we're going to have an armed conflict with such and such a group, and we're going to change the rules here. But we want to have express express variance from it in in some cases, and this would be a good case for that, since it's domestic and since it's involving a lot of U.S. person communications. That's the whole point. Um, so the question that remains is, okay, despite the fact maybe you don't think the statutory arguments are good, but nonetheless, what about the possibility that as commander-in-chief in wartime, let's stipulate that it was indeed um, properly invoked as a commander-in-chief scenario, does that actually override a statute? In other words, is Congress constitutionally disempowered from uh, constraining the commander-in-chief in this way? And we've alluded to this before in prior episodes, but I, I actually think this was the most dramatic assertion of this argument. More so than interrogation assertions? Um, 
I think only because this was the one that was like meant to be public, right? The interrogation assertions came in the the Bybee memos, which were at least initially not for public consumption. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Whereas, right? Whereas, so so I guess maybe the two together were the were the yeah. were the, maybe it was it was weightier because of what the other subject matter was. Yeah. But this, as you're you're right to say, like, but this was like said publicly in Commander in Chief override arguments. You know, you don't see that every day. <laughs> no, um, you had not seen it since Nixon vetoed the War Powers Resolution in 1973. Um. So the the I think this this is where the rubber hits the road on the on the commander chief thing, you know even if you believe Bobby as I think you have you have convinced me is right that surveillance of enemy communications is part and parcel of the war power right um, I don't know that the commander chief clause gets you all the way to therefore Congress has no ability to impose constraints on the domestic collection even of enemy communications especially when Congress has created exceptions allowing for circumstances where the commander-in-chief clause might be most necessarily brought to bear. That, that seems right to me. Um, it, I can imagine a circumstance being described in which, although I think the emergency exceptions within FISA might pick this up, but you can imagine especially exigent um, surprise attack scenarios with, with disempowerment of certain parts of the government where you, you might uh, actually see a commander-in-chief argument that does actually make sense in the circumstances, but where there was time for deliberation and lots of lawmaking in the surveillance space going on, including the Patriot Act, yes. which changed lots of stuff. And IRPA. But not this, right? And IRPA. Yeah. Right? I mean, that even has, I mean, well, although that comes along late enough to where it's not as... I know, but here's a space where Congress is clearly being reactive, right? Whereas opposed to like the AUMF, where Congress is just sitting on its hands, yeah. you know, clearly Congress is engaged on these issues. So um, we've talked before about Hamdan and the timing of the Supreme Court's decision in June of 2006 about the military commissions, and what I always thought was the larger signal that Justice Stevens had been trying to send in footnote 23, where he talks about basically why the president can't ignore limitations on his war powers properly placed upon Congress, and why I really think Stevens wasn't thinking about military commissions, right? Why that was directed elsewhere. Yeah. And I think this and the torture memos are what Stevens was re- was right, was these were out in the public discourse at the time, and so and 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 so that's right. This this white paper was January two thousand six, right? The Stevens opinion is June two thousand and six. Supreme Court doesn't expressly repudiate this argument, no, but, but it's th- a shot. It's a shot across the bow. And for those who are listening to this, thinking like, I wish you guys would just pivot now and talk generally about separation of powers during wartime. Why we have a deep dive for you. Go back and find our Youngstown sheet and tube Indeed. steel seizure case deep dive. And and this isn't this is an application of that. Indeed. All right. So so the 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 last piece I want, I want to say about the TSP is the other piece of this that I think is often neglected in conversations is the telecommunications companies that were participating in the TSP were breaking the law. Um, right, you're that, about 2511. I am right that 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 there was a that there was a statute. I, I'm you might remember the language better than I do, but that basically the telecoms couldn't provide consumer you know customer records sure. to the government without a court order. Right, so ECPA, the the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act, and the subpart of it that is the Stored Communications, Communications Act, Act yeah. um, is first of all it's it's the it's the most miserable statute to try to parse. But the upshot is that there's no question that unless you have unless you buy into the uh, the AMF. Uh, interpretive argument or the commander-in-chief override argument that uh, at best this was high litigation risk uh, for them in terms of possibly violating the Stored Communications Act. Some of the telecommunication companies, not all of them, were nonetheless uh, cooperating as long as this was out of the headlines. Although Quest, right? There's a, there, QS Quest was, the, uh, was, yeah. the, was the famous like, no, we're not doing it. We right. don't believe this is legal. 
Right. And so, and, and you can, this puts some general counsels in some pretty tight yeah. spots. Um, but also, let's, it's easy in 2018 to forget what the atmosphere was like and the yeah. concerns and the, the sense of, of national danger and the sense that this was a real armed conflict, obviously contested in many quarters, but there were plenty of people who felt like this was a war and it was in part on the home front. So, for better or worse, a number of telecoms cooperated. But uh, once this thing becomes public, the litigation like, risk, oh, not to mention the PR costs and right. the business cost, the shareholder derivative suits, everything about it becomes absolutely prohibitive. So the leak in this case was substantively dispositive of whether this could continue as, as it had. Right. There was no way it could because you couldn't do this without company cooperation. Which makes me wonder why. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, I'll, I, I'll save my. I'll save my. I'll save that for later. So um, the companies got sued. Um, and so there's yeah, right, all over the place, all over the place. Um, so President Bush goes on t- television and says, um, we have to give these companies immunity. Why? Because they did nothing wrong. Now, no, that, yeah, that's, you <laughs> that's know. literally what he said. Come on. That is literally what the man said. The, the, the argument for immunity for the companies was they they clearly have litigation risk, as I just said. They did something for the good of the country when the executive branch called upon them in the spirit of responding to the 9-11 attacks. Um, whatever else is going to happen, let's not because the scale of the the liability based on what you get like per violation yeah, is let's ginormous. let's not destroy the telecommunications industry <laughs> in the United States. Let's let's bless this retroactively. It, it's sort of rather like Lincoln coming along in the Civil War saying like eh, maybe this one's illegal. Congress ratify what I did. Oh, I was actually I was thinking more of the the portal to portal cases. Um, so during World War Two. The, there's a time when the Supreme, so the the government for a while, inter- the the Fair Labor Standards Act requires you know employers to pay minimum wage, maximum hours, um, and the question was whether if you were like a mine worker, whether your portal to portal time counted toward your minimum, you know, counted as as on the job time, um, and for a time the government thought the answer was no. The Supreme Court in a trio of decisions in 1945 and 46, 46 and 47 says actually the answer is yes which has the effect of creating billions of dollars ah. of retroactive liability. So did Congress step um, in? Including, including um, just to the government itself on cost plus contracts, where the government would have been paying through the nose. Yeah. So Congress steps in in the Portal to Portal Act of 1947 and not only destroys those claims, right? Not, not only says, no, <laughs> the Portal to Portal time does not count, oh. but also says, and the federal court, sh- no court shall have jurisdiction to hear any claim trying to enforce a Portal to Portal Act. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Although it's, when it's you- actually it's a huge so it's a it's a huge moment in federal courts because the question is can Congress in the same statute in which it retroactively destroys a vested right deprive the federal courts of jurisdiction to hold that the destruction of the vested right was unconstitutional. All I can think about this is as the lawyers who were arguing against the portal to portal claim in the first instance, yeah. uh, were they not billing their time uh, in the car <laughs> thinking about the case on the way to the office? Yes, uh, yeah, so the policy arguments, the, the portal to portal policy arguments, I think, are pretty straightforward. Um, I say all that awesome. just to say, so there was similar litigation. So Congress ends up, I think, in the Protect America Act. Um, I think part of the Protect America Absolutely, Act yeah. was the telecom immunity provisions. Absolutely. And those get challenged on this whole, like, you can't retroactively destroy. Yeah. Like, fine, the law right. going forward is the telecoms can do this. But generally speaking, the courts do allow this sort of uh, well, so, immunization. So eventually, I mean, I, if we had, you know, a day and a half, I could talk about my problems with the Ninth Circuit's decision that basically <laughs> upheld the statute. But it all no question away. those liabilities are now off the books. Correct. Uh, now, should we pause here? How far in are we? Uh, one hour and six minutes. So I think we've... We've dove as deep as we should in one setting, so and what, we should but, but pick why up the story with the with right the, prote- with the prote- so 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 all this means is that 
late 2006, early 2007, yeah. it is clear, at least on this front, that Congress has to go back to the drawing board. That's right. And in the administration, the Bush administration's view was, we've got to have this. Right. This is this stuff is gold. We need to go back and get statutory authorization so we can resume. And indeed, now compel right. those telecom providers to continue this type and one, of cooperation. And one more piece of this, and if I recall correctly, we now know that sometime along, sometime in the same time window, um, a FISA judge um, bars bars a similar program, or maybe it's maybe it's part of the same program, um, where you have where you have what like, that there that there was a time where the FISA court had actually allowed this to go on, and that a FISA court judge actually changes their mind. In two thousand, in late two thousand six, and that, that's this is all part of the the rush to Congress to get the Protect America. Right, there's there's absolutely a complexity of that sort, and so what we'll do in the next Gosh. deep in the deepest dive, deepest dive, we're going to not only pull the thread through all the way to today on what becomes Section seven hundred two and the reauthorized version of seven hundred two. So we'll get to the back door and all that fun stuff. And USA Freedom, phone and, records. And we will also do the metadata story that is bubbling up contemporaneous with, but is a different story in many yes. important respects from the 702 TSP story. And we'll get Mr. Snowden in the mix as well. And we'll talk about the whole thing as we dive to the deepest depths of the ocean. Including the first time FISA ever gets to the Supreme Court. And by the way, when you get to the deep steps of the ocean, you might find a transatlantic cable and you might find uh, some opportunities for collection. So there's a there's a whole connection there between our submarine motif on this show and surveillance. And you're shaking your head at me like that was like just a bridge too far. Or a dive too deep. A dive too deep. <laughs> We're going to um, hit the bins. All right. So early next week, we'll come back for, for the last part. And then um, I actually think maybe in episode 98, we'll, we'll do... Oh, wait, that will be 98. Episode 99, we'll do some news again. Well, hopefully we'll have collected a lot of it by then. And, but we really need to save the good stuff for 100 in Washington. Yeah, I guess that's right. Um, right. Anyway, so listen, he's Bobby Chesney at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, if you're in D.C. and want to come on the 14th, check out the Eventbrite. Um, if you are not in D.C. but want to buy a T-shirt, do that too, preferably by Halloween. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios.